thank you for coming. I know you have no idea what you're coming to, but it's nice of you to drop in anyway. For the millions of people who will listen to this as a podcast someday, I'm Rabbi Stephen Carr-Rubin, the Rabbi Emeritus of Kahilat Israel, Reconstructionist Congregation of Pacific Palisades. In case you're in, I don't know, Shanghai or something listening to this and wondering, who is that guy talking? In any event, so the... The title is uh, Miracles and Magic and Mystery. It's Life Lessons from Hasidic Masters, which basically is an opportunity to tell stories, because in part that's how Hasidic Masters taught, through stories. So um, so I'm going to start with a story. You don't have it, because <laughs> it would be no fun to start with a story you have in front of you. There was once a little boy who wanted to meet God. He knew it was a long trip to where God lived, so one day he packed his suitcase with Twinkies and root beer and started off on his journey. Yeah. When he had gone about three blocks, because he was a little boy, he met an old woman in the park. She was sitting on a bench just staring at some pigeons. The boy sat down next to her, opened his suitcase, and took out a root beer. He was about to take a drink when he noticed that the old lady looked hungry, so he offered her a Twinkie. She gratefully accepted it and smiled at him. Her smile was so pretty that the boy wanted to see it again, so he offered her some root beer. Once again, she smiled at him, and the boy was delighted. So they sat there, the two of them, all afternoon eating Twinkies, drinking root beer, and smiling, but they never actually said anything to each other. As it started to grow dark, the little boy realized it was growing dark, and he was tired, so he got up to leave. But before he had gone more than a few steps, he turned around, ran back to the old woman, and gave her a big hug, and she gave him her biggest smile yet. When the boy opened the door to his own house a short time later, his mother was surprised at the look on his face. She asked him, what did you do today that made you so happy? He replied, I had lunch with God. And before his mother could respond, he added, you know what? She's got the most beautiful smile I've ever seen. (laughs) Meanwhile, the old lady also radiant with joy, returned to her home, and her son was a little stunned by the look of peace and joy on her face, of course, and asked, Mother, what did you do today that made you so happy? She replied, I ate Twinkies in the park with God. And before her son responded, she added, You know, he's much younger than I expected. (laughs) Hasidic wisdom. No, it's not actually a Hasidic story. Unless I was a Hasid, then it would be a Hasidic story because I told it. It's now a rabbinic story because I am a rabbi and I told it. And that's how stories come to be and come to teach. You tell a story about the everyday, the everyday miracles of life. And in the Hasidic tradition, this is a perfect example of searching for God. Because that very much is what is the goal of the Hasidic tradition. It's um, what in Hebrew slash Yiddish they would call divakus, which 
is the Yiddish pronunciation of the Hebrew dvekut, which is clingingness, connectedness to God. And one of the fundamental goals in Hasidism is to every day find ways of creating a deep and deep and deep and deeper and deeper connection to the divine. In the everyday, it's not going out to the mountain and sitting in a cave and simply contemplating. It's what are the everyday actions, the literally the everyday experiences in which I can find holiness in my life. It's not a bad goal for any of us to have. Now, as many of you might know, the famous founder of, uh, of Hasidism is known as the Baal Shem Tov. So the Baal Shem Tov uh, used to quote the Psalms, which said, in all, <coughs> in all of your ways, know God. Figured that was a good enough overarching principle as any. In all of your ways, know God. To a Hasid, that means everything you do, eating and walking and talking and drinking and discussing and making love, whatever you do, you should strive with your whole being to consecrate your actions so that you experience a sense of divine bliss in those actions. So the Baal Shem Tov's name was Israel Ben Eliezer, 1698 to 1760, for those who like numbers. I don't. I forget them instantly, but I'll read them off to you for those who like that kind of thing. And he came to be known as the Besht, which was an acronym for Baal Shem Tov, the Besht, which literally means the master of a good name, Baal Shem Tov. And in fact, you know, in the Talmud, <coughs> when it asks one of the many questions the rabbis ask in the Talmud is, what's the most important quality that anyone can have? And one of their most popular answers is a Shem Tov, a good name. So when you become the Baal Shem Tov, you become the master of the good name. Now, it's kind of a double entendre because it refers both to your own person, that is, what we normally think of as someone having a good name. I mean, when I say, if I use the phrase, a good name, like what do you think of? What, what do you associate with? with? What's it, what, what do you think that would mean? Reputation. Reputation. Someone has a good name, it's like, you know, you say his name, you say Bert Kleinman, you think positive things, right? You hope. If you're Bert Kleinman, you hope. You hope that when someone says Bert Kleinman, you know, they don't go, oh, that son of a bitch, you know, that guy, you know, he's cheated me in business or something. You, you, you want people to associate your name with integrity, with qualities that you admire. That's what having a good name means. But in this case, Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good name, refers to another name which is Hashem, the name, with a capital T. The name is God, right? In all of its various forms. So the Baal Shem Tov, a master of a good name, was someone who was um, the, a consummate, brilliant, magic even, purveyor of... Uh, of the mysteries of the universe because these individuals, starting with the original Baal Shem Tov, knew how to use the special private personal name of God, the Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh of the Torah, that's God's private name, to make miracles 
and to do magic. So when you read about Hasidic masters, you inevitably read stories about them doing as miracle workers, among other things. Not just teaching great lessons, but, you know, they could do something called Kvitzat Haderech, which is, oh, I'm late for my appointment in New York. Bye. You know, Kvitzat Haderech means shortening of the road. They had the magic to use God's name for, like, travel. They could instantly zip somewhere and theoretically, you know, all these magic stories. They could, one of the most popular things that these Hasidic tzaddikim, these masters could do when they knew how to use God's special name is protect the Jewish people. Because this whole school of Hasidism grew up originally in sort of the era of pogroms and era of little shtetls and era of Eastern Europe and Russia where um, the Jews were always afraid, am I doing that? Afraid of uh, what was going to happen next. (laughs) God is talking to me, I'm not using the name right. So Baal Shem was a wonder worker. Uh, in fact, it was this week's Torah portion that we just had where God tells Moses, Moses, I'm going to give you my personal, private, special, secret name that I, haven't give, that I didn't give to Abraham and I didn't give to Isaac and I didn't give to Jacob. I'm going to give it to you. And God says it's Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, those four Hebrew letters, which uh, we generally pronounce when we read it in the Torah, Adonai. <clears throat> and if you literally read the way the vowels are written in to the Torah, you could read it as, <coughs> excuse me, Yehovah, which is where Jehovah came from in the Christian readings of of uh, the Torah, and why God's name was thought to be in what Christians call the Old Testament, Jehovah, because they read it literally, even though that wasn't its intention. So, these uh, Hasidic masters were scholar mystics. And um, they would write the name of God in amulets to protect you. You would carry them around. You can have your own little red strings and put little amulets of God's name there to protect you. Uh, or they would use them to heal, to heal people, because they were allegedly miracle workers. Much as I am a miracle worker. That's why I have on my license plate, make miracles. I keep hoping my car will somehow make miracles, I guess, for people. I don't know. Uh, it does that for all of the valets who park my car when I pull up to a valet. They always come back and go, "Great car." So, <clears throat> in any event, as with all, as with all, can't wait to see who listens to this podcast and goes, "Who? Who is that rabbi again?" <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> as with uh, all great legends, the Baal Shem Tov began life as an orphan and was thought to be intellectually backward as a child. He was self-taught and he used to work. Um, just so you would always pay attention to the teaching profession. He used to work in the in what was the cheder then, what was the religious school then, mostly just accompanying children from their home to the school and, the, and to make sure that they would get back and forth safely. And he would teach them dancing, and he would teach them melodies. You know, he would teach them how to sing, because it's another one of the well-worn Hasidic ways of connecting with God is singing 
wordless nigunim. He married the sister of a local rabbi in his town of Brody in the Carpathian Mountains and became known far and wide as a healer. And he adopted the goal of his life of trying to teach the commandment found in Deuteronomy that says, you should love Adonai, your God, and listen to God's voice and cleave to God, for God is your life and the length of your days. So that's the Devekut part. He tried to figure out what does it mean to cleave to God when you don't see some supernatural being walking around to cleave to, what could that possibly mean? And so developed his own understanding of what Dvekut was all about. Simply in, infusing every act of your day with a sense of divine purpose. So, also, in his day, when people thought of rabbis, much like today, they thought of brilliant intellectuals. <laughs> much like today. Um, and the rabbis of, of the time were known to be those who would, you know, immerse themselves in the intellectual study of, of all of the details of the Torah and the language of the Torah and the letters of the Torah um, and try to find the esoteric meanings of of the words in the Torah. And um, what the Baal Shem Tov ultimately did and what became one of the major themes of the whole Hasidic movement was appealing not to the intellectuals, but appealing to the every person. Appealing to how can I bring a sense of holiness without having to say the only way you can get there is achieving a very high, you know, Maimonidean intellectual level where you can understand the depth of what the Torah really means. The Baal Shem Tov's goal was, how can I take the ordinary Jew on the street and have him or her experience a sense of the sacred? No matter what their intellectual level is, no matter what their background is, no matter what their education level is. And that's why Hasidism has always been sort of the the original spiritual power to the people movement, because that's who it was aimed for, the every person. It was about joyful living. He didn't teach a systematic philosophy, but through Proverbs and through moral aphorisms and through stories that we're about to read, some of from those stories, his disciples would create a certain philosophy and system. And his disciples became known as, uh, as Hasidim, from the Hebrew Chesed, which is sort of compassion in that sense, to try to be loving, compassionate ones. Um, so a Hasid became a lover of God and of godliness, and groups of Hasidim gathered around and followed charismatic rabbis who became their rebbe. So instead of rabbis, it was their rebbe or their tzaddik, their righteous person. And the role of the rebbe was literally to model the passionate love of God. Uh, And that's how the Baal Shem Tov ultimately taught as well. So, tell you what we're going to do. I would say, uh, before we do it, we're going to read the first story. Before we do that, 
There's a famous uh, phrase from the Torah that we have in our liturgy, in our service, that says, Melo kol ha'aretz kavodo, which means the whole earth is full of God's glory. If there was one short phrase that would be, you know, what Hasidism is about, that would be it as well. Melo kol ha'aretz kavodo, the whole earth is full of God's glory. You want to find God? Open your eyes. Literally, that's all you have to do. If you open your eyes, you see the miracles all around you, Right? You either walk sightless through miracles or you're conscious of those miracles. But according to the chassim, the chassid, the miracles are there anyway. It, the question, whether you see them or not, is up to you. God's miraculous world for, is there, which is why, as I often say, our, our tradition starts in the very beginning when you wake up in the morning with this whole series of blessings to open your eyes to the miracle of your life. So you open your eyes, you say, Modani lefanecha, melachai v'kayam, shechazar tabi nishmati bechemla, rabba emunatecha. If you're a traditional Jew, or me, <coughs> you say, you know, thank you God for giving me my soul back. Meaning, ah, thanks, I woke up, essentially. You know, the older you get, the more grateful you are for waking up. Right? <clears throat> I woke up, I'm on this side, I'm grateful. You know, that's what that blessing is, prayer is really all about. It's, I open my eyes, I'm still here, Thank you. You know, and the notion uh, that, I mean, I've often mentioned that in Jewish tradition, there's the idea that when you go to sleep, your soul leaves your body and hangs out with God and gets refreshed and rejuvenated and then comes back into your body when you awaken in the morning. So, good sound system in this synagogue. Um, anyway, so you say that and then you give thanks for your body. You know, there's that famous blessings about the, all the holes and orifices of your body that, that's, one of my favorite blessings. It's real concrete. It gives thanks in the morning. Nikavim, nikavim, chalulim, chalulim, galui v'yadu alifneki sekavodecha. It says you give thanks for the holes and orifices of your body. That if the bless you, if the ones that were supposed to be opened were closed, or the ones that were supposed to be closed were opened, it'd be impossible to exist. That's what the blessing literally says. So thank you, God, healer of all flesh. That's the, essentially the blessing. It's a very physical blessing. In Jewish tradition, you're supposed to say that blessing every time you go to the bathroom, in fact, after you, when you finish. Going to the bathroom, you know, and after all, if you're in the hospital, you have a, an operation, they won't let you leave the hospital until your plumbing's working, right? Some of you know that experience. You know, as soon as your plumbing starts working, we'll let you out of the hospital. Until that, you're here. We're watching you. Because that's the miracle of life, is that, you know, the things that go in and come out where they're supposed to. Otherwise, they back up and, you know, you're in trouble. Motion, keeping things moving. You never thought this was going to be what I was talking about tonight, did you? You see? You never know. Rabbi Rubin's teaching. We better go find out what he's going to talk about. You'll never know. I can't wait for the people in Shanghai to hear this. Whatever. Reconstructionism, that's what we call it. Okay, so... uh, But our tradition says... This grounds you, literally, in the physicality of your body as a sacred experience. Breathing. Breathing in, breathing out. Going to the bathroom, making love, doing the things that one does with one's body is an expression of holiness in Jewish tradition and certainly championed by the Hasidic movement. That To see God in that ordinary, everyday acts of life. So, if you have that kind of consciousness, and of course, all of this is really the theme of gratitude, the blessings, different different things to be grateful for. It's gratitude. 
Um, and the idea is to start your day putting on lenses of gratitude so that, oh, you see the world through that perspective. You either get up grumpy because, you know, you're, it's too early, like this morning, I got up, I had somewhere to be at some place, I thought it was whatever time, and it turned out after I got up and got dressed, took a shower, whatever, that I misread the clock, and it was an hour earlier than I thought, you know? And I went, why did I get up? You know, what did I, what happened to that hour? At most days I wake up and go, what's wrong with me? Why did I wake up? Because you'd think my body would know it should sleep, but it doesn't. In any event, you know, you can get up and grumble, or you can get up and do what I also do to stop the grumbling, which is say these blessings every morning. Because, you, you know, you, it's one of the great spiritual physics. Spiritual physics for me is, I should write a book called Spiritual Physics. It's kind of a cool title. Anyway, spiritual physics is you can't hold at the same time two opposite thoughts. You can only hold one thought at a time. You can be quick at them, but you only hold one thought. So if you want your thought to be gratitude and not frustration and irritation, then speak words of gratitude. It hooks you into and forces you to be thinking about gratitude. So rather than be irritated because I woke up an hour earlier than I actually wanted to, I started reciting these prayers, and now there I was back into gratitude. Oh, well, I woke up in the first place. So what? I woke up an hour early. At least I woke up, number one. And number two, you know, my body was working and all that stuff. So that's sort of the the essence of also what the Baal Shem Tov and, and all of his followers were all about. So let's do this. I, I gave you a handout. I have them numbered. So number one. Number one says ten letters. Once during the days of awe, you know, that's the ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the sainted Kabbalist Yitzhak Luria heard a bat kol. By the way, Yitzhak Luria, we're never going to get this story done, but Isaac Luria was considered the founder of systematic Jewish mysticism, lived and taught in Tzfat, Israel in the 16th century, just so you get the background. He introduced, first of all, the idea of what in Hebrew is called tzimtzum. It's, one of the, it's this fundamental mystical idea. If you've taken any mysticism classes, you know about tzimtzum. Tzimtzum means contraction. The idea was, if God's glory fills all the universe, then there was no room for God to create anything, because God filled the whole universe. So in order for God to create the world, God had to have engage in tzimtzum. God had, had to voluntarily contract God's self, to create space in which to create the world. It was like, uh, from the, for the mystics, this was the original act of godly, divine love, that God was willing to be humble. This is a great role model, right? God, who was God, voluntarily contracted God's self to create enough space for other people to exist, us, in the universe. And in the process of symptom of contraction and creating the world, according to the Luria and the, his mystical system, God's uh, was filling up all these vessels with divine light, and they couldn't hold the divine light because who could hold God? So they shattered, and sparks of divinity went everywhere. And our goal in life as human beings, in part, is uh, what we call tikkun olam. We think of as social action, you know, healing people and helping the homeless, the original idea of tikkun olam was healing the world by finding, searching out and finding those divine sparks and sort of returning them to God and then healing the world in that 
spiritual sense. So that was sort of a quick Isaac Luria lesson. In any event, the Kabbalist Yitzhak Luria heard a batkol. A batkol is a divine voice. Batkol literally is the Hebrew for a voice from God. Some of you hear voices. Hopefully they're voices of God. Telling him that for all his prayerful intensity, there was one man in a neighboring town whose capacity for prayer exceeded even his own. So as soon as he could, Reb Yitzchak traveled to that town and sought the man out because Isaac Luria was like the great you know, Jewish mystic of his era. So naturally he thought, God tells me there's some guy whose prayers are better than mine. i got to go check this guy out. I have heard wondrous things regarding you, he said to the man when he found him. Are you a Torah scholar? No, said the man. I've never had the opportunity to study. Then you must be a master of psalms, a devotional genius who prays with great intensity. This is such classic Hasidism. No, the man said, I've heard the psalms, though, many times, of course, but I don't even know one well enough to recite it. And yet, Rabbi Luria cried, I was told that the quality of your prayer surpasses even my own. So what did you do during the days of awe that would merit such praise? Remember, this is all taking place in the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, those ten days of awe, the most sacred season of the entire Jewish year. Rabbi, the man said, I am illiterate. Ah, the champion of Hasidism, the illiterate Jew. I am illiterate. Of the 22 letters of the Aleph Bes, of the Hebrew alphabet, I only know 10. So when I entered the synagogue and saw the congregation so fervent in their prayers, my heart shattered within me. I couldn't pray at all. Didn't know the prayers. So I said, Ribono Shalom, Master of the Universe, here are the letters I know. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion, Chet, Tet, Yud. First ten letters of the alphabet. You combine them in a manner you understand, and I hope they'll be pleasing to you. And then I repeated those ten letters over and over again, trusting God to weave them into words. Okay. That is such a classic Hasidic story. You've probably heard it some version of it other times in your life. So, before I get back over here, what do you make of that story? What's the point? What's the meaning of that story? Anybody, to you. Classic Hasidic story. What's it all about? And Prayer is about the heart and not the head. Because the Hasidic movement is a really an anti-intellectual movement. It's, you know, they're constantly going... <coughs> To the intellectuals. So they took Isaac Luria, who was the great Kabbalist, also the great, you know, intellectual, and they make him sort of the, I was going to say buffoon, that's the wrong word, the, uh, whatever you call that person in literature, who, the foil, thank you. I used to be able to speak English. The foil of this story to a guy who says, I'm illiterate. So prayers of the heart and not the head. Okay, what else could you learn from this story? Cooperative effort. Cooperative effort. What, what do you mean? Well, between the prayer yeah. and God. Ah. It's not just one way. It's not just about you either. It's a, it's, a, it's a connection. It's back to this dveikut, this cleanness, this connection. What makes this this person who only knows the first ten letters of the alphabet such a powerful prayer, according to God, because according to this story, Isaac Luria heard a voice from God saying, by the way, there's a guy in the next town who prays better than you do, you know. 
is that he, even though he only knew these ten letters, as you said, he threw them up to God and said, okay, make something meaningful out of it, <laughs> right? Here are the letters. It was a partnership. Prayer is a partnership. Prayer is an opening up to the possibility. It's also about possibilities. You know, we tend to, you know, show me, prove it to me. You know, I believe it when I see it. Um, Hasidism is about uh, not seeing is believing, but believing is seeing. The other way around. In fact, spiritual life is very much about believing is seeing, and not the other way around. Prayer is about, yes, it's about, it's about believing is seeing. Here's a perfect example. So, one of the lessons is being open to the possibility that God can make sense out of your not sense. I mean, there wasn't any sense in Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zayn, Chet, Tet, Yud. It's simply letters. You know, it wasn't that here's a meaningful phrase. It was, it was total faith, an act of faith. I'm going to just say these letters, it's all I know, but I'm going to say them with such fervor that the meaning will emerge. And over and over again. And over and over again. And not just, okay, I didn't see any miracles happen. It's, the chanting. what? It's chanting. It's like chanting. It is actually absolutely like chanting. It's what meditation is about. It's about yes. What else? Yeah. I think it's partly saying that God is an emotion. Oh, it's partly saying that God is an emotion. It's not. It's very much, as I said, an anti-sort of intellectual movement, and very much a an emotional grounded movement all of Hasidism, that, um, although there's, it's more complicated than that, obviously, but um, it's about emotion. Having, the, the more pure you, you can t- tap into your own emotion, the more directly you will connect with the divine. You know, it's, back to what Anne said, it's a matter of the heart, not of the mind. Yeah. yeah he had a personal Ah, thank you. So Wayne said, he had a, it was a, it was personal. It wasn't like, he stepped into the room, everybody's praying, whatever they're doing, they've got a prayer book, they have a machzor at the time, they have the high holiday prayer book, they're reading the prayers. He went within, in that sense, and said, I, I, I don't even know that, I can't do that, I can't keep up with them, I don't know, have you ever stepped into a service, and had no idea what the... What was going on, and what they were reading, and where they were, and it's like, uh, you know, um, and so he he gave expression to his own inner soul, inner spirit. Very personal. What else? Yeah. Uh, he seemed to have his spirituality through no effort, it, it, almost like falling off a log. Hmm. You know, it just sort of happened by accident, and uh, the naturalness of it. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't need to have any training to do it. That's another one of the lessons of the Hasidic movement. Is in this sense, you don't have to have training to have a relationship with God. You just have to do it. Oh no, that was Nike. You just have to. It's the Nike spirituality. That's my next book after this one. Nike spirituality. You just do it, and and it's very much about just do it. You know, it's like jump in. 
jump in, step off the cliff. All the images are very much, you know, step off the cliff and um, have faith that there'll be a net there. You know, there'll be, someone will catch you. Uh, because if you, if you have to have proof in advance that it's going to be okay, you'll never do it. And he trusted it would make sense at some point. And he trusted that yeah, God would make, God sense, would out make sense out of it. God would make sense out of it. You know, look, so much of everyone, everyone's on a spiritual journey in life. Everybody is. We're all on our own spiritual journey. We're all trying to make sense out of the world. We're all trying to make sense out of our own lives. That's what we do. You know, and human beings, as I so often say, are, look at throne. Human beings are, we're, we're meaning makers. We make meaning out of everything. You know, something happens, we, we can't stand the possibility that it doesn't mean anything, so we decide it means something. You know, we look back on our own lives and we take the arc of our lives and we give the story a meaning. You know, and most of the time, well, very often, we we give it a positive meaning. Some people give it always a negative meaning, but the idea is to give it a positive meaning. You know, see, even these bad things that happened to me happened because it was going to lead to something good, right? That's the old story, which I also say all the time. It's the blessings and curses, and you can't tell which are which. And sometimes the blessings that start as blessings end up as curses, and the things that start as curses end up as blessings. You know, and, and we all have those experiences. And that's part of this as well. It's having faith that even when you're going through a tough time, somewhere down the line, it'll make sense to you. You'll make meaning out of it. We make meaning out of simple acts. We make meaning out of everything. We, we do this. We take a cup, we put wine in it, we go, Baruch and we suddenly turn it into a Kiddush cup. This coffee cup could be a Kiddush cup, right? If I was at camp and, you know, we were doing this with grape juice and it would be a Kiddush cup, just as much as whatever silver cup's around, right? And we do that with everything. You light a candle and if it's on a birthday cake, it means one thing. If it's in a Yortzite glass, it means something totally different. If it's on a Friday night, and you're lighting them at home, uh, ushering in Shabbat, it's something. If it's a part of a Hanukkah and a menorah for Hanukkah, all of a sudden the candle means something else. But it's all the same. It's wax and a wick, and you light it. So what does it mean? It means whatever you choose to make it mean in that particular moment. That's what we do, we human beings. Probably more than our pet, dog, and cat, and whatever. Probably, I don't know. I don't know how they think, but I'm projecting that that's what sets one of the things that sets us apart from animals is that we make meaning out of all those things. Although they probably make animal meanings out of things. So I'm not going to go there because my daughter would kill me if she heard that anyway. Um, I think she's got 12 dogs at home right now. You know, Gable's a dog rescuer, so she. If you ever need a dog, have I got a dog for you? I got 12 of them for you, as a matter of fact. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so here's this simple, cute story. But it's much more than a cute story. And all these stories are more than cute. But there's, they are a means to an end, and the end is opening our eyes to experiencing the sacred. Yeah. Get away from the negative and do the positive more. This is both, and it's hard to deal. Sometimes you don't know if you're 
Life is a little confusing, yes. So, yes, um, for those who couldn't hear, what was pointed out was that we make meaning, but um, life is filled with positive and negative experiences. What we draw from those experiences often is both positive and negative. And very often, for many of us, there are long stretches in our lives when it looks like, feels like, we have a lot more negatives going on than positives, which I think is what you're saying. And so what do we do then? How do we turn ourselves, tshuva, how do we return to feeling, experiencing things more positive than negative? Gratitude. Right? So gratitude is one of the ways we do that. You know, look, you can't always do it. Here's the reality. The reality of life is sometimes you're depressed. Sometimes everybody's depressed. There's things to be depressed about. Things are bad. You know, sometimes bad things happen. Harold Kushner became very wealthy writing about when bad things happen to good people because bad things happen to everybody. Good or bad people. Every person has things happen to them, has tragedies in their life. Everybody experiences loss. For example, one of the fundamental experiences of humanity is loss. Learning to live with loss, learning to cope with loss, learning to experience loss, learning to transcend loss, learning to live with loss is one of the number one primary fundamental challenges of living for everybody at every stage of life from birth. We get born into loss, kicked out of the womb, big loss. Right? You're in the womb. You're safe. Everyone's taking care of you. Suddenly you're getting strangled to death. You know, that's why you get out. Suddenly you're being choked to death. Suddenly you're being like, you're dying. You have to get out of there. And so you fight your way out. More or less. You know, or someone takes you out. Or whatever. You know, from, from birth, we're wrestling with loss our whole lives. And successfully learning to live with loss is one of the ways that we swing the pendulum to the side of positive as opposed to the side of negative, knowing that loss is inevitable. You don't get to vote on whether you're going to have losses in your life. Everybody has them. Yeah. Somebody? Yep. No, I thought you both had you. Yeah. There's another dimension to that. Yes. And that is there's a lot of people who say they need to understand what they're praying before they'll even open their mouth. Ah, beautiful. And part of what this man was doing was praying first and looking for understanding later. Yeah, beautiful, Bert. Yes, so so often we are intimidated by what we don't know, particularly in the realm of religion, prayer, things like that. You know, it's like we live in, we grow up in an age of great skepticism anyway. And certain language is a, becomes a barrier, the way, you know, I mean, talking about God all the time, or, or prayer, or, you know, things that push our buttons and, and get in the way of allowing ourselves to have an experience of the sacred in life. Which is why, um, I mean, I'm a rabbi, so I spend my life doing this stuff, but uh, it's one of the reasons I use those traditional Hebrew formulas of those prayers, not because I like... I. I like what they say, that is, literally, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam is the Hebrew formula for a prayer. 
It means, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, ruler of the universe. I happen to personally not believe there is a God is some Lord, some, I mean, it's, you know, it's um, medieval language anyway, Lord of the universe, uh, some supernatural being somewhere. That's not how I experience God. But I use that phrase always because for me, that phrase means a Jewish prayer about something. That's what it means. I say, It means a Jewish prayer about eating, food, bed, whatever. Or a Jewish prayer about gratitude, when I say those words in the morning. And I say them, not because of literally that they, what they mean, as much as I then feel a sense of belonging and connection to thousands of years of Jewish history. Oh, other Jews who've said these same words, because it's part of Jewish tradition. So for me personally, Stephen Carr Rubin, that's one, part of what I get out of using that particular way of praying for me. It's not the literalness of the language. And I know these are prayers of gratitude. So they force me to remind myself to be grateful. And I agree 100% with Carol that gratitude is the foundation of shifting from the negative to the positive. You know, the other thing to do is to go help somebody who's worse off than you. You know, helping other, that's why we have all these Tikkun Olam projects. You know, going to help someone, that's why that cute story that I started with of the little boy and the old lady in the park, I love. Why I love that story is not just because it's cute, but because they were helping each other, wordlessly helping each other, you know, have a Twinkie. What could be better than that, you know? And she smiled, and and the reward back and forth was, you know, somebody, I matter to someone. And ultimately, one of the ways that you shift your own, get out of your own way of the negativity, which is real in life and not diminishing it at all. You know, we have things. We don't feel well. We have physical challenges. We have stuff happen in our families. We have relationships that are fractured. We have, you know, fear out in the world. We have lots of things that of which you could, you know, surround yourself with negativity. Every time you do something to get you out of yourself and help someone else, you automatically experience life differently. You know, you remind yourself that you matter. And you know what I always say, what we do and what we say and who we are matters. And every time you remind yourself of that, it helps to shift. And I think that's part of the underlying messages of these stories. Anybody else on anything else related to this? Because I'm going to do another one. Okay? Yeah. By the way, back to Isaac Luria for just a second. Uh... Remember I talked about Isaac Luria, he was the guy that had the tzimtzum and the God contracted so God could create the world and then God's light, divine light was just too much for the world to take so shattered and, and because of those sparks being everywhere, the language that Luria used was God was in exile and needed to be ingathered by you helping to find those sacred sparks hidden in the things of life. Well, the reason he used that language was because he was talking to Jews who felt like they were in exile. And so they were able to connect and have a sense of, oh, even God's in exile. How bad could it be for me if even God's in exile? And I mean, literally, that's part of the reason that, that, that mystical language grew up. So you can see why it would appeal to people. Particularly, people who had only recently been victimized by the Spanish Inquisition, 
not too previously, and felt that they were exiled from every place. So, okay. Number two. I'm going to drive you all away, but I like that. That's okay. Reb Yaakov Yitzchak of, I can't even pronounce this myself. Anyone have a good pronunciation of Pishka? It's Pishka. This just shows how brave I am that I would actually bring, put that in here. Rabbi Yaakov Yitzhak, 1766 to 1813, came to be called the Yid HaKodesh. That's the greatest name. The Yid HaKodesh. He's the holy Jew. He's the Yid HaKodesh. That was, that's, that's what he became called, the Yid HaKodesh, because of his passionate emphasis on moral self-improvement. Okay, so. Reb Yaakov Yitzhak once ordered his senior disciple, who was Reb Simcha Bunim, okay, Simcha Bunim, 1765 to 1827. Before becoming a chassid, Simcha Bunim was a pharmacist and a businessman, traveled widely, and he spoke fluent German and Polish, and he devoted himself to teaching the importance of attaining the proper internal spiritual states before engaging in every mitzvah. I know it doesn't make sense, but you'll get there. Okay, so Reb Yitzchak, Yaakov Yitzchak, ordered his senior disciple, Reb Simcha Bunim, to make a journey to a distant hamlet. When he inquired as to the purpose of the journey, the Yid HaKodesh remained silent. So what's going on so far? Yeah. The, the, the Rebbe, the Rebbe is Yaakov Yitzchak, tells his disciple, sends him on a mission. They like to do that. They send their, without telling him why. By the way, what does this guy's name mean? Simcha Bunim. Simcha Bunim is, well, Simcha's joy, but that was just his name. Okay. Yeah. Um, actually, it's Hebrew. Simcha Bunim is really Simcha Banim, which is the joy of children. Banim, sons or children. Okay, Reb Simcha Bunim. So he doesn't know, but he's supposed to, he sends him to this particular town, and essentially already, when you're reading the story, or you're hearing the story, you're assuming, ah, he has to go, he'll figure out where he's going when he gets there, right? He'll f- go to this town. Okay. Reb Simcha Bunim took several Hasidim with him, of course, and left on the journey. He didn't want to go alone. First of all, travel was always dangerous, particularly in the 18th century. You know, traveling is... You think it's dangerous now. It was always dangerous. Highway robbery and everything else, dangerous. He left on the journey. The sky had already turned to dust by the time they arrived at their destination. Because the town had no inn, Reb Simcha Bunim ordered his coachman to stop at the first cottage. He knocked at the door and was invited in along with his students. They were very friendly in those days. When they, imagine, someone with his coach knocks on your door and has got his students with him. Hi. Just passing through. Okay. He knocked at the door and was invited in. When they asked whether they could join their host for dinner, the man replied he had no dairy food and could offer them only a meat meal. Because there was a bunch of Jewish people and they kept kosher. It's either meat or dairy. They didn't know what they ate, what they what their dietary uh, traditions were. So he said, I could only offer you a meat meal. Instantly, the Hasidim bombarded the man with questions about his level of kashrut. So the guy says, he's this humble guy, opens his home, he says to these chassidim, okay, I, I'm happy to feed you, but I, I only have uh, meat, 
And you know how it is with some Orthodox Jews. They care more about the, you know, how the meat was slaughtered and what the, how you can prove what, what are the kashrut, the level of kashrut. Is it kosher enough for you? I don't know. Who's the butcher? I don't think that butcher. You got from this butcher, it's kosher enough. This butcher, not so much. You know, arguing over whatever. So that's what the Hasidim started doing, right? Who's the shochet? Who's the slaughterer? They demanded to know. What's the level of kashrut? Were the animal's lungs free of even the smallest blemish? That's part of you know what the shok is supposed to do to make it kosher, they're not supposed to have any blood. You're not supposed to eat blood, right? In the Torah it says you don't eat blood. That's why you have kosher salt and everything. It draws out the blood uh, because in the Torah it says dam hu hanefesh, the blood is the seed of the soul in the Torah. So you don't eat someone's soul, you take it all out. So one of the ways that you make sure something is kosher, meat is kosher, is they have to make sure that the lungs are clear of any of any blood. Otherwise it's not kosher. So they're asking all these Delightful questions. Uh, was the meat salted sufficiently to draw out all traces of blood as was required by law? The interrogation would have continued had not a commanding voice from the back of the cottage called out to them. They turned their attention from the owner of the house to a man, in most Hasidic stories, dressed as a beggar. Hasidic stories loved beggars. <laughs> beggars were it. Because, you know, nobody challenges your sense of propriety and who you are and everything more than walking in front of Ralph's and seeing that woman who's now living on the street in front of Ralph's, trying to figure out what to do. Do you walk by? Do you say hello? What do you do? Right. So, a beggar, sitting near the hearth, smoking a pipe. They turn around. This is quite a scene. There's, in the midst of everything else, there's a beggar sitting in the house, smoking a pipe, they hadn't quite had the uh, Surgeon General's rules yet, so they were smoking a pipe. My dear Hasidim, the beggar said, with regard to what goes into your mouths, you are scrupulous. Yet regarding what comes out of your mouths, you make no inquiries at all. <laughs> when Reb Simcha Bunim heard these words, because uh, he was smart, he knew the reason for the journey. He nodded respectfully to the beggar, thanked the householder for his concern, and returned to the wagon, saying to his students, Okay, come on, we're now ready to return. <laughs> to Pishka. They didn't need. They, anyway. they didn't need anyway. So, another classic Hasidic story. Love this story. Okay, so what's the story teach? And the lesson is, dot, 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 what? First of all, some people are very picky about picky things. What else? What do we learn? Yeah. Being able to identify what really Ah. Being able to identify what really matters. What really matters? For the students, who of course were students, this is the difference between being a student and graduating and being out in the real world, right? When you're a student, all of a sudden the theoretical things are really important. Big, important things. It's like my approach to interfaith marriage. It's a perfect example. I was a rabbinic student lo these many decades ago. I was a rabbinic student 35 years ago. No, 45 years ago. Sorry. Been around my 40 years this year. God, I'm old. Um, in the five years I was in rabbinic school, we had lots of conversations in rabbinic school about interfaith marriage. And would you officiate an interfaith marriage? And under what circumstances would you officiate? And what should the rules be? And what should the requirements be? And all that stuff. 
And I had a whole list of them because I was a student, and that's what we do. We talk about all these things. And then I got ordained, became a rabbi in 1976, May, 40 years ago. And the first thing that happened was, dear friends of mine called me up and said, we're getting married. And I went, how fantastic. And they said, "Would you? will you marry us? And I said, of course I'll marry you. And then as I heard the words come out of my mouth, I realized, oh, they're an interfaith couple. <laughs> but, and I realized on the spot, fortunately, my first month as a rabbi, people were more important to me than whatever rules were out there for somebody somewhere that somebody made up. And from then on, literally for the last 40 years, I've always put people first. So it's like, well, this is about people. It's not about whatever. And if you take care of people, the rest of, you know, Jewish civilization will take care of itself anyway. So for me personally, in my own rabbinate, it never became an issue anymore about officiating, not officiating. I officiate for anybody, for anything, everywhere. Dogs and cats, you know, whatever. Everybody. I've done weddings where nobody is Jewish. <laughs> Literally, I've done it. Except for me. I was the, I was the, the token Jew. Yeah, you know. Uh, anyway. And so, how did I get on that? Oh, the words. Yeah, that's right. So, what's important? The question issue was, as Wayne said, figuring out what's important. You know, arguing over the details of whether there's bl- a drop of speck of blood on on the lung of the animal is not what's important. The guy was opening his house, opening his home to strangers and saying, "Welcome, I'll feed you." And all they could do was give him the third degree about how kosher was his food before we're going to eat it. You know, creepy. What else can we learn from this story? The words are about interpersonal relationships. To me, it's saying that God cares, or we should we should care as much about how we treat other people ah. as we do about strictly obeying some law that some, only affects ourselves. So, obeying the law or the rules, or trying to follow rules is not as important as caring about people in this sense. I think to them maybe both were important. Yeah, both were definitely important. But, but part of the lesson of the story is if you only do one and not the other, then you may be following the letter of the law, so to speak, for the lawyers here, but not the spirit of the law, which is supposed to be about the quality of society, right? Yeah, and thinking of lawyers. The host is more Jewish than the students. Beautiful. Yes, the host was doing exactly what he's supposed to do. Hachnasat orchim. You know, welcoming the stranger is one of the great mitzvot of all Jewish life. It doesn't say welcoming the stranger, but only if you got the right kind of meat and the right kind of this. And otherwise, don't welcome the stranger. Yeah, there was another hand that I saw somebody in. Yeah, yeah. Margo. Personally, from this synagogue or for this synagogue, yeah. at one point a number of years ago, we had a decision to make, and that was, I think, whether or not we were going to have a kosher history. Oh, right. The reason was so that every Jew would feel comfortable eating. Right. Our- yes, when we built this building, 1997, when we finished this building, that was one of the, we had the Religious Practice Committee, one of its big decisions was, we all remember, those of us who were here, was should we have a kosher kitchen or not, right? And the, ultimately, even though it was clear that the vast majority of members of this synagogue do not keep kosher, there's no question, the vast majority of the members of the synagogue do not 
keep traditionally kosher. They may do a variety of kashrut, but not traditionally kosher. Still, we voted, the congregation who made the vote, voted to have a kosher kitchen, and the overriding principle was to try to create a welcoming community so that any Jew, regardless of who they were, theoretically, could come here and eat here. They don't necessarily, but they theoretically could come here. Except for when they're this kind of chassid and they come and they go, wait a minute, I don't like your kashrut, which we, which we have not kosher enough, that's exactly what they do, and they go, no, no, we're not gonna do it, we'll bring our own food in from the American Airlines or something, you know, more kosher, American Airlines and those plastic things that they hand out, that disgusting kosher food. Yes, so, what else can we learn from this? Anything else from this story? Yeah. So, so your comment is twofold. One is, this seems to reflect an era of time in which it was a, a broader custom to welcome people into your home, strangers into your home, travelers, people who are passing through, particularly in Hasidic stories. Yes, that's true. But, because they had to go somewhere, otherwise the story wouldn't go anywhere. Um, but the idea of, <coughs> look, th- there's a reason that one of Abraham's in the Torah's great qualities is exactly this, and that he's known for Hachnasat Orchim, that, you know, welcoming the stranger into his tent. Um, and that, that's one of the number one fundamental commandments of Jewish tradition is to welcome strangers because, as the Torah so often says, more than anything else, we know the heart of the stranger because we were strangers. You know, we were strangers in the land of Egypt. So we know what it's like to be a stranger, so therefore, we'll all tell Donald Trump, therefore, you're supposed to welcome the stranger. You know, and your other comment was that the era in which we are living, particularly this particular year, month, year, um, is one of heightened... Uh, fear and paranoia about strangers. You know, xenophobia, I suspect, is the correct technical term for that. We're afraid of the strangers. And, and we have a society that seems to very loudly, continually reinforce our fear of strangers, whether justified or not. You know, uh, and yes, I think that is a, I think it's a big challenge. I think if I were giving a high holiday sermon right now, that would be what I'd be talking about. Maybe what I'll be talking about when the holidays come around by then too. Who knows? But exactly because it is such a big issue, our fear of the other, and our uh, you know how we position ourselves relative to strangers, and and the emotions versus the the intellect and the facts versus you know our perception because 
Perception is everything in life. You know, attitude is everything in life. So, yes, I think that is part of what's revealed in, in this kind of story. And and part of this is a longing, part of the reasons I read these stories, is a kind of longing for some of the qualities of yesteryear that we cherished. You know, some of those. Yeah. It's, 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 this story, and a lot of these stories are part of the historical perspective of the Jews. It was not unusual for Jews to travel and bang on a door and stay so. Yes. They did this all over the world. Yes. And there were... You know, in fact, trade went that way. Jewish right. trade went from you go and you knock on the door and you are welcome in the community if you were Jewish. How they became traders around the world? Yes, because they could go a day's journey and stop. Yeah, and then they go another day, stop somewhere else. Maybe they stay a week, um, and uh, they would expect the other people to do the same to them when they came through their place. Yes, and it became and people had multiple families in their in their home. Also, we are much more atomized, so to speak, that is. It's just two people in a family. Two people there, and we had all of those multiple generations, so they were, so it's a couple more people. But that's how Jews became more cosmopolitan <clears throat> than the other people, because the other people did not have that tradition. Yes, very much. Uh, what you're saying is very, very true. That was how Jews traveled around the world, knowing, you know, look, many of the people in this room, I suspect, if you had a child at some point traveling to Europe or someplace and said, if you get in trouble, call, go to the, find a local synagogue and knock on a door. You know, at some point in history, people used to say that all the time. You know, you're going to be in a strange, if you, if you get in trouble, go find a synagogue. Your forebears were peddlers. What did they peddle? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Probably not. In uh, yeah. Because they'll take you in, and you can have Shabbat dinner with them. Speaking of chassids, yes. And that is their tradition. Yes, and their tradition continues. After all, this uh, Chabad is started as one of the major became one of the major Hasidic movements. Of our time, it's certainly it's the biggest Jewish movement in in the world. Yes, and this also exists today, believe it or not, in uh, Islam, in the Muslim world, ah. where hospitality is an extremely important uh, yeah. value. I was recently in the Islamic Republic of Mauritania. Of course, you were. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, of course, I asked you were. Someone, I asked someone from the American embassy who, who I was working with if there was much extremism there. And he quoted the ambassador as saying, the only thing that the Mauritanians are extreme about is hospitality. Hospitality. Beautiful. And sometimes it gets over. Yes, it's also a Middle Eastern sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that is, any, any part of the world that, that relied on, on traveling, on itinerant, people coming and going, people coming and needing to have hospitality as a value so that you wouldn't die. Literally, so you, when you got to a town, someone would take you in. Hospitality became one of the fundamental values of those societies. So throughout the Middle East, caravans and wandering, uh, you know, look, look at the whole Torah. The whole Torah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, what were they doing? They were wandering place to place, going place to place. That was the, you know, that was the custom, that was the tradition. That's how they lived. That's how everybody lived. So it grew up as a part of that that tradition. So this too, but uh, 
The power of Hasidic stories is the values that it teaches. Mostly they're cute. They have a certain cuteness to them. But the values of that you've, you know, articulated, that people are, are more important. What are your values? What are your priorities? You know, what, what this Rebbe, Simcha Bunim, I forgot his name already, what Simcha Bunim said, oh, now I know why we came. It's because I heard this and I realized from the beggar, by the way, the beggar is usually Eliyahu Navi, Elijah the prophet is usually the beggar there. Um, except for one Passover when we opened the door for Elijah and a cat walked in. I remember that one. <laughs> Elijah's the cat. We named our next cat Elijah because you're supposed to do that. In any event, Elijah's usually, you know, the last person you want to see is the beggar. Because, like, you know, they're dirty and they smell and they're whatever and you don't want to be with them. And so those are always the... You know, the stories of redemption would have come except for that, you know, nobody fed the beggar kind of thing because they didn't recognize that this was Elijah the prophet waiting to see the quality of, of our society. And the quality of our society very often in our tradition is measured by how we treat those most vulnerable. You know, that's how you, that's how you measure the quality of your society. Not, not by how you treat people who are rich people who have everything. It's people who are poor and don't have everything, who are the most needy. How we treat them as a society is the is the measure of our society. Right? The rest of us can take care of ourselves. So, yeah. Yes, dear. Are you able to tell um, us where it says in the Bible that we should open our home and be hospitable to the stranger? <clears throat> Am I able? To, can I tell you where in the Bible it says we should open our home and be hospitable to the stranger? Well, it says uh, uh, about thirty-six times in the Torah um, that you should, um, you know, the heart of the stranger. It's all over the place. So, um, starting after the Exodus, so. Um, I can give you a bunch of, I can't off the top of my head tell you exactly the passages, but I'm happy to do that if you'd like, because I can find them very easily. Um, it's all over. You know, it's over and over and over again. Um, and and it's throughout the rabbinic commentaries to the Torah, uh, starting with Rashi, uh, beginning with the commentary on Abraham uh, when uh, Abraham had the, welcomed the three strangers into his Tent, who then predicted that uh, Sarah was going to give birth to Isaac, and this was the first instance of sort of, of Jewish hospitality, and they used that as the as the role model. Okay, one more story. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> you don't mind. I like this one because it's called the Frog Song. <clears throat> Ribbit. <clears throat> okay, when Dove Bear, oh, who was Dove Bear? Dove Bear was known as the Magid of Metzrich. Because <coughs> Magid means teacher. Magid is a word to just teacher. From the town of Metzrich. Lived in 1704 to 1772. Just so you get a sense of when these, these were all 18th century people. Dove Bear, the Magid of Metzrich, he was a, he, he was a towering intellect. This man, the Magid of Metzrich, he was a great intellectual teacher. But he focused his efforts on um, 
he wanted to create a philosophical Hasidic base for the future. He succeeded the Baal Shem Tov. He was one of the Baal Shem Tov's number one uh, primary disciples. And he created really the institution after him of what, what we call the Rebbe. He became sort of the first person who created himself as a Rebbe, and then everybody, all the other great Rebbe's followed him and had their circles of Hasidim around him, charismatic, independent, you know, leaders like me, charismatic, independent leaders with all my followers coming around. Okay, so we have some of those in town, though. We do have some charismatic rabbi types who um, create their own synagogues like that. Sharon Browse is that kind of person and several others. Wasn't me. When, when Dav Bear, the Magad of Metzrich, died, his senior students gathered to share their memories of their teacher. Hours passed, and eventually they fell silent, having exhausted all they could remember. After a few minutes of silence, Reb Schneer Zalman of Liadi, anyone know that name? Schneer Zalman of Liadi was the founder of Chabad. This is the original Chabad Rebbe. Schneerson comes from that. Just so you know, Exactly. Son of Schneer. Rabbi Reb Schneer Zalman, 1745 to 1812. Here are all the Chabad Rebbe's. They were father to son, father to son, father. There were seven of them. Schneer Zalman, 1745 to 1812. This is how they, when they lived. Dove, you'll notice they have the same name over and over again. Rabbi uh, Reb Dove Bear Schneur, 1773 to 1827. Then Rabbi Reb uh, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, 1789 to 1866. Then Reb Shmuel Schneerson, 1834 to 1882. Then Reb Shalom Dovber Schneerson, 1860 to 1920. It's not anywhere, I'm just reading it. Because <coughs> I wrote it down. Then Reb Yosef Yitzhak Schneerson, 1880 to 1950, followed by the most famous, the last Rebbe, everyone known as just the Rebbe, uh, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, 1902 to 1994, and then he didn't have any sons. So there's no Rebbe after the Rebbe. Menachem Mendel Schneerson was the last Rebbe. Uh, there's a brilliant book that, uh, about the life of the Rebbe that's, uh, that was just published this year by, uh, um, my brain went, I'll tell you in a second. He died in 1994. When he died, all the, all the Chabad Hasidim said he was the Messiah. And uh, so that's why there wasn't any son after him. And he's just waiting to redeem everybody. Uh, but he is the one, really, Menachem Mendel, the, the last Rebbe, who really created the Chabad that we know. And, you know, the Rebbe's army of sending out literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands, really, of shlichim, of, of people to all, everywhere in the world, so that everywhere in the world you can go, you can find a Chabad Rebbe somewhere there. They go out, they are real, they are the, they are the, uh, the Mormons of Judaism. <clears throat> you know, they, they go out on a mission. I mean, they are. They're, they're the only ones who, they're willing to go to any community, set up shop, and do whatever they need to do, and, and live there. Made so, uh, what, what made him, no, I don't. I don't remember. He was uh, well. He was a very educated man. He studied at the Sorbonne. He studied, and so he, you know, part of his his uh, intellectual pursuits. Uh, and then I think it was just anti-Semitism that that for, had him come to the United States. In any event, the original 
founder of Chabad, Reb Shneur Zalman of Leadi spoke. Our teacher was a sage of infinite wisdom, but some of his action can be a bit confusing. For example, we all know that our Rebbe used to leave his home at dawn each morning and walk along the lake where the frogs congregate and croak. What I wonder is, do any of you know why he did this? The Hasidim looked one to the other, but none spoke. Rabbi Shnur Zalman then answered his own question, because that's what rabbis do. They ask questions they know the answers to, so they can answer their own questions. That's what we do. That way we sound smart, because <laughs> we only ask questions we know the answers to. That's why we shouldn't let you ask any questions. This is this is what I think. We learned from Parak Shira. Parak Shira was a, was a Hasidic text, a, a book, that when King David finished writing the book of Psalms, he called to God and said, Is there any creature who sings more praises to you than I? Suddenly, a frog hopped up in front of him and said, What arrogance! Because, of course, frogs talk. <laughs> Particularly in a Hasidic story. The frog said, What arrogance! Even for a king, I, for one, recite far more songs of praise than you, and each of my songs contains 3,000 interpretations. And that's not all. My very life fulfills a mitzvah, for there is a creature that lives on the edge of this pond whose very life depends on eating me. When he's hungry, I give myself to him in fulfillment of the verse, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Which is somewhere in the Torah. Um, Okay, I'll keep going. Every aspect of creation, from the smallest to the greatest, from the inanimate to the animate, carries a melody into this world and sings it each in its own way. Even frogs have their own song. He paused, this is uh, Reb Schnur Zalman, to see whether his friends were following him. Don't you see, he said to them. This was the reason our Rebbe walked to the lake each morning. He went to learn the song of the frog that he might pray among them. Another cool Hasidic story. What's it mean? What's the point? First of all, first thing you learn is you can learn from anyone. Anything. And not just anyone, you can learn from anything. Remember how I started? I'm sure you don't remember how I started. But one of the ways I started almost an hour and a half ago was to tell you that one of the principles of Hasidism is to find God in everything, in the ordinary, everyday experiences of life that the sparks of God's holiness are everywhere, even in the frog song, the song of the frog, the frog song. The frog, this is a great, it's a midrash on a midrash, actually, because the midrash that he quotes is from this book that talks about the Eric King David saying, because what what was King David known for? A, King David is known, alleged, as the author of all the Psalms, 151 of them, or whatever there is, 151, all the Psalms. He was the sweet singer of Israel. When you read about about uh, about King David in the Bible, you read about him playing the, you know, guitar, playing the lyre. He was the first guitar-playing rabbi. Um, and, uh, and singing, and he wrote songs. And he sang. And, you know, according to the Midrash, according to the legends, the, he had a magic lyre that, not a liar, liar, but you know, a musical instrument liar that hung on his wall and it served as a, an alarm clock. And every midnight, 
My wife has one of those in her clock. Every midnight it goes off to tell her to take sleeping pills. Anyway, midnight. At every midnight, the lyre would suddenly start playing. And if David was sleeping, it would wake him up so that he could then, at midnight, rise at midnight to sing songs of praise to God and write songs, which is what he did. He was one of those late night, that's how he kept musicians hours. It was perfect. That's what musicians do. That's why Dee and I are up all night. So, it's musicians hours. <clears throat> Played drums last Friday. It was Temple Isaiah, though. You got the wrong synagogue. Second Friday of every month, 6.15, Temple Isaiah. I'm the drummer in the band doing a jazz service. Anyway, so uh, the next one is February 12th, in case you want to come. It's a lot of fun. King David was known in the Midrash as the great singer of Israel. He would write so- rise at midnight, write songs, and sing them. So here in this Midrash, King David says to God, who does a better job than I do, you know? King of Israel writing songs to you and the frog jumps in his face and says you arrogant king I do a better job than you do I mean have you ever heard frogs singing at night you want to like kill them right yes it's like you're out in the woods and there's frogs doing and they never stop they're singing all night long so what which is the real the where this cute story comes from, because anybody who really lived in the woods, lives by a pond, knows that it's incessant noise all night long. And so they said, this is the, the very frogs and crickets and whatever of the world singing praises to God. Better than we do. Better than even King David, because he's the ultimate. It's like Hal Homer. it's a, sort of a, the way the rabbis talk. If even if a frog's better than King David, clearly going to be better than you and me. Right, because the whole earth is full of God's glory. That's the principle. Melo chol haaretz kavodo. The whole earth is full of God's glory. You either hear this fakakta frogs noise at night when you're out in Park City or wherever you go. You know whatever noises you hear over there when you're out somewhere in some beautiful setting and you hear nature and like it's loud. Um, it's a good season for snow, isn't it? Boy, there's snow everywhere. Um, and you get irritated, or you or you hear it this way. This is the answer to your question, by the way, earlier. You either hear the frogs and go, would someone shut those frogs up? Or you hear the frogs and you go, someone's singing to God. Someone's praying. It's the universe praying. I mean, what... How different would your attitude be if you literally said the universe is praying? See? So, um, if you look at these three stories, and if you cheat and read ahead... (laughs) I knew you would. I I should have just handed out one at a time. You get these consistent themes of Uneducated is wiser than the educated person. Yeah, the low person's better than the high person. More noble than the rich person. Because there's more of them. (laughs) More complex than the sophisticated person. Yeah. So, what is it about a system that has this this devaluation of uh, intellect? It's an anti-progressive theme, right? It's almost going backwards. So, why is that? Why am I spending time doing this? No, but I don't. It's for you. It's perfect. <laughs> you found your... What am I missing? What is so attractive about this? Okay, so, um, two things. 
first of all, I like stories. So for me, it's what wisdom you can learn from stories, any story. Um, you know, that's why I'm always telling stories when I'm doing sermons, because I like the story thing. Uh, and I like I liked the methodology of storytelling as a way of, um, of teaching values and lessons. And you get to choose what the values are and the lessons are you want to learn from this. Yes, in the context of Hasidism, and, and I mean, I said the same thing, you're 100% correct, the audience that they were speaking to was a poor Carpathian mountain, Lithuanian, outside, running from the czar, all over, you know, audience. It's the Tevya audience. It's literally, it's the fiddler on the roof audience that they're speaking to, these Rebbe's. And they are trying to elevate these people who are downtrodden and give them a sense of meaning and purpose and holiness in life, in their lives which sucked and were fearful. And, and that's where this comes from. You know, it comes from, how do I speak to the person who says, what are you talking about? Look at my life. Look at how poor I am. Look at how difficult life is. Look at how fearful I am. Any moment, my life is in the hands of some local, you know, governor who may decide, I think it's time to get rid of all the Jews. You know, and that's the Jewish experience in all these places over and over again. This was an attempt at the Rebbe's, the teachers, to instill in those lives with a sense of holiness and elevation. That you're not just playing in the mud even though you're living in the mud. Because guess what? The frogs are singing to God. So the everyday experience of your life can be holy. You don't, and for those who are ignorant, which is most people, why do, why did the reform movement starting in the 19th century in Germany and then all the subsequent um, progressive movements of Jewish life, one of their great innovations was preaching in the vernacular because n- nobody understood the Hebrew small numbers of people understood the Hebrew anyway they were they learned things by rote but they didn't know what it meant it was like meaningless to most people so in order, they, in order to make religion Judaism meaningful they wanted to speak in a, in, a, in a language that people could understand so that was one of the great innovations starting with the reform movement and everybody else after that to speak in a language that people could understand this was the the Carpathian Mountain version of that, so to speak, <coughs> the Baal Shem Tov saying, how do I speak to and inspire people whose lives are difficult, painful, fearful all the time, and, and ignorant? And most of them don't have an education. Most of them have a very, very, very rudimentary education. How can I give that value and not make people feel like, since I don't have that Education. I'm not the rabbi of the one person in town who, you know, can read and write everything and knows everything. How do I make that person feel like they're someone special too? That everybody can be someone special. And that's really the underlying messages of all of these stories and why they sort of pick on as the foil the, you know, the king or whomever, King David even in this case. Listen, they... It's not that they didn't worship, they didn't idolize King David. He was just a handy foil because he was so uh, the the archetype of the sweet singer of Israel. So to say, even a frog can you know praise better than than 
than we do, means the whole world is full of God's glory. That's the message that they learn. And it's also, you know, how do you speak in a way that's meaningful to people who are downtrodden? How do you inspire them? That's one of the ways. The other way is what demagogues do. I'm not talking about Trump anymore. How, what, what demagogues do, which is to say there's us and them, they're the enemy, and, you know, we're the entitled ones. And so we should... You see that? Thank you. Perfect. There we go. Nine o'clock. So the frogs were singing, the time's up. I paid them to do that. Okay. That was perfect. Thank you. Okay, so, um, yeah, I'm going to stop because it's nine o'clock because I can go on forever. But, uh, One final story that you don't have, short, along the lines of everything we've been talking about. Reb Avram Yaakov of Sadegora was once sitting with his Hasidim. Their conversation was light, covered many topics. Almost as an aside, Reb Avraham Yaakov said, You know, my friends, it's possible to learn great truths even from inanimate things. Everything can teach us something. Taking the Rebbe's statement as a challenge... One chassid asked, So tell me, Rebbe, what might we learn from a train? The Rebbe answered that because of a single second, you might miss the whole thing. And from a telegraph, see how old this is, isn't this cute? From a telegraph, another student asked, What might we learn from a telegraph? The Rebbe answered that every word is counted and that every word carries a cost. (laughs) And the telephone, Rebbe, yet another chassid asked, Tell us, what can we learn from this? Ah, said the Rebbe, we learned that what you say here can surely be heard there.